0: So yes, we're doing a triumphal entry this morning, and uh, that's uh, Luke 19 is going to be the text we'll be looking at. Luke 19 is quite a long chapter, and uh, it kind of comes to us in four scenes. Uh, scene one is the story of Zacchaeus, uh, scene two is, is a parable, and the Zacchaeus incident and the telling of the parable both occur in the city of Jericho. And then scene three takes place elsewhere. Uh, actually, most of it's taking place around the vicinity of the Mount of Olives, near a couple of little villages. And uh, and then scene four takes place in Jerusalem itself. And uh, so that's just to tell you where we're going. And we're going to focus on scene three. That's the, uh, that's the triumphal entry. And uh, so let's have a look here at... Uh, Luke nineteen, and I'll uh, I'll read to you from verse twenty eight. After Jesus had said this, and we'll have a look in a minute at what he said, but let's get into this bit of the story first. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. And the children within your walls—they will not leave one stone on another, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So, what's going on here? Well, I think uh, first we want to think about the gospels more broadly. The gospels give us a lot more than just <coughs> the wise words of Jesus, don't they? And they give us more than just a series of random supernatural events. So often they show us Jesus intentionally evoking all sorts of prophetic kind of imagery. For reasons that are sometimes obvious and sometimes a bit opaque. And it's clear to me that Jesus had an incredible sense of occasion. I like to imagine him as probably somebody who had great comic timing as well. He just had this sense of theatrics about him, and there's a lot of theatrics seems to be going on in this in this story here. The thing seems slightly staged, <coughs> doesn't it? Even the fact that he knows about the cult, and well, go off, you'll find it here. There's something going on. He, Jesus wants this to happen in a certain way, and it's important that it does, and so. There's a lot of theatrics going on, and more than just the pantomime donkey. And I think it's also important to note, just at the outset here, we've got a lot more to say, but that Jesus is at a point in his ministry here, what you might call this kind of his career, where he's having to put up with a lot of what, in today's language, we might call um, the problem of celebrity. Because he's big time now. His ministry's been... Rolling on for three years. The crowds have been getting bigger and bigger. Jesus is really big news now. That's part of the backdrop of this story. And I think, uh, so just as part of this introduction, part of this significance. So when this guy who's big news comes in this kind of comedy theatrical way on this donkey, with all this noise and commotion, and this singing, we, we saw there in verse 38, they were singing songs that they were taking from the Old Testament, from the Psalms. Psalm 118 is the psalm that's getting quoted. There's great significance in that. I think we'll see in a few minutes. There's actually great significance in the fact that it wasn't one of the traditional psalms that would be sung on that journey. because That, was, that journey was also a pilgrimage from the Mount of Olives up the hill to Jerusalem. And there were certain songs, you'll find them in your Bible, from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. They're called the Psalms of Ascents. Ascent, to go up the hill. The Psalms the pilgrims would sing. And so, why sing that particular song? Maybe it's a bit of a provocation. And it's clear from the response of the Pharisees that that may well be the case, but we'll talk about them in particular later. So I want us to start by imagining this scene. And to do that, I think it's got to be widescreen. I don't know how many people here have got Sky HD. I haven't. Some people haven't got 3D these days. But let's try and get into this. Let's try and picture this on the biggest possible canvas. Because it's epic. It's a hot day. It's a noisy crowd. It's a dusty road. There's olive groves on either side. And it leads down into a valley. And in the near distance, maybe a mile or so, maybe two miles away, we've got this city sitting proudly up on a hill on the other side of the valley. A walled city. It's Jerusalem. And it's loaded with significance and with history. And the road, it's like this, it's like a strange river. Because it's kind of foaming with people. An activity and something's going on there. And we sort of zoom in there amidst all the waving green palm branches. And we zoom into a detail at the middle. And just kind of slowly nodding and bobbing along. Got this fella on a little donkey. And it's, he's far too big for it. And you think the poor little thing is going to crumble under his weight. But it somehow manages... Tough little things, these donkeys, aren't they? It somehow manages to plod on down the hill. And there's, it's as if... It is as if the whole thing's a bit of a joke. But it's an in-joke. Because everybody in the crowd seems to be in on the joke. It's almost like they already know the punchline. And we have a punchline in a sense, because... There's another Old Testament reference going on there. From Zechariah. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says this. Rejoice greatly daughter Zion. Shout daughter Jerusalem. (coughs) See your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious. Lowly and riding on a donkey. On a colt the foal of a donkey. So what's the mood of the crowd? (coughs) Let's try and get ourselves into this crowd. They're, they're clearly enjoying themselves. But there's something else in the air. There's this sense of jubilation. It's as if these people have been waiting a very, very long time for something good to happen to them. But there's also a sense of something else brewing. Is this going to end up in a party? Or is this going to end up in a riot? I don't know if you've ever been in a big crowd when it's got that edginess about it and it could go either way. One of my friends in London is a a police officer. He's a senior police officer in the Metropolitan Police. And when he had his previous patch, which was in West London, he had both Fulham and Chelsea, both in his patch. And, uh, you know, he'd have to... Crowd management was one of his big things. And he he talks to me about how you can sense the mood of a crowd. So, what's the mood of this crowd? I want to go back now. You know, when we started and uh, we started in scene three, let's go back to scene two. Let's go back to the parable because the way that this is set up is going to tell us a lot about the mood. And so, uh, scene two is the parable that maybe in your Bibles, maybe it's called the parable of the pounds. Uh, in some Bibles it's called the parable of the ten miners, which makes me sound like it's some people from Yorkshire. Uh, so, and it, but it's basically it's almost, it's similar to the parable of the talents, except it's got some differences. In fact, superficially, you might think it's the same story being told. But it's got something at the beginning, a detail, that we need to pay attention to. Because Luke begins the parable like this. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king. And he goes on to say that his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say that we don't want this man to be our king. At this point, we need a little bit of history to help us. Because those few lines changed the whole spin on that story. Herod the Great. Now we hear a lot about King Herod, don't we, in the Gospels? But Herod, Herod the Great, the one who built that dynasty, he died in 4 BC. And as often happens with one of these big men, big king, has sons, they don't get along. They fall out. They're contesting who's going to be the follow-on. And so one son, impetuous, Archelius, he decides, I'm going to get myself appointed king. What does he do? This nobleman of noble birth. He goes on a journey to a distant country. He goes to Rome to meet with Caesar to have himself appointed king. Archelius, even before becoming king, has already committed atrocities amongst the Jewish people. He's incredibly cruel. He's incredibly unpopular. So the Jews, unbeknownst to Archelaus, send a group of 50 Jewish diplomats after him to also talk with Caesar. To say, we don't want this man to be our king. Now that puts a whole spin on the story, doesn't it? Because the minute Jesus starts a parable saying a man who of noble birth wanted to become king, went to a far off country to get made king, delegation sent after him. That's always telling us about Herod Archelius. Herod Archelaus came back with his tail between his legs. Caesar didn't make him king. In fact, the whole situation got even more complicated because Caesar decided, these Jews are hard work. I'm going to put a Roman governor over this province. These little Herod guys, I'll just give them a little bit of power to keep them happy. And so both the brothers got split parts of the kingdom. And so... Even with that history then. So how are these listeners going to understand it? And how did Jesus mean it to be understood? Well, I think there's probably, and we'll never know. But I think there's, there's either two ways people are going to have understood that. Either Jesus was telling them a story about going away and returning. So is this sense of Jesus giving them a message, a kind of a temporary farewell message it was a story that was a more immediate call to arms. The king is returning, and this time, he's got the crown. And maybe that crowd was split in their understanding of it. But what we do know is there was definitely a great expectation in that crowd. An expectation that had been building from Jericho, because the crowd had been traveling with him. It's only 15 miles. Jericho to Jerusalem. Apparently they say it's about an eight hour walk. And so this crowd's been traveling. The expectation's been building. The crowd's been getting bigger and bigger. And now it's reaching fever pitch. I wonder if we try and imagine what's it like to have expectation. I wonder what you've had the most expectation about in your life ever. What you got really hyped up about really excited about? Was it a a once-in-a-lifetime holiday that you got the opportunity to prepare for (coughs) a new job that you were dead excited about and you really built up in your mind? Maybe it was moving to a new city or even a new country, getting married. A lot of expectation builds up. (coughs) Having, Having a child. Finally winning the league after 44 years. I wonder how the reality of that expectation eventually sort of translated when that moment came. I remember at the end of last season, sitting in my lounge with four generations of our family, watching City play QPR, and my dear 94-year-old granddad literally nearly died and went to heaven. (laughs) When Aguero scored that last goal. He literally did. We were all jumping around and celebrating, and then we turned around Granddad. Granddad. He'd gone all quiet. And a little tear streamed down his cheek. right, but we'll get it's the FA Cup back. Keep going, back, <man>. keep going. <laughs> now, there are actually, there are three crowds in this story. I, I, I reckon there's three groups of people in this story. Because there's that crowd, the travelling crowd, the, uh, the enthusiastic entourage. And then there's a whole bunch of other people. It'll get complicated the closer we get to Jerusalem, because it's coming up to the feast of the Passover. And so Jews from all over the place actually from you know places all around the Mediterranean Basin and all across the Middle East, travelling people. They would have come back to Jerusalem. And so there's all these foreign pilgrims in town as well. Grace and I used to have a flat in the city centre. One of the most scary times of our lives was when some buffoon decided that they should play the European Cup final at the Emirates Stadium. And we were invaded by Glasgow Rangers fans. The entire city centre was full of them. My goodness, you should have seen the ap- aftermath in the morning. It was apocalyptic. <coughs> and so there's this, these other, this other crowd. There's, there's the, the traveling bunch, the entourage, the Galileans from these northerners with their funny accents. There's all these crazy pilgrims blended in with them, making the whole scene much more co- They would have been wondering what on earth is going on here. And then there were the Jerusalem residents. And if you were a resident of Jerusalem, you would have been in a different class altogether. (coughs) The residents of Jerusalem would have been savvy, commercially minded people. Probably pretty cynical too. They'd seen it all before. They saw these festivals come and go. These big festivals, so they were a good source of income. Lots of people coming through, staying in your little guest house, buying your food and your wine buy little trinkets to take home with them, T-shirt, I went to Jerusalem and all they bought me. They weren't impressed. They'd seen lots of wannabe messiahs before. And so they would have seen this crowd approaching and immediately, more nutty out-of-towners. They didn't belong in sophisticated (coughs) Jerusalem with its culture and its commerce, the centre of law, the centre of government. What did all these uneducated fools from the north really think about, they knew about running a country, about the politics of clinging on to sacred customs, in contrast with the negotiation that they had to constantly do with these tetchy Roman overlords. And they they better not get too rowdy, or else they'll upset the apple cart for all of us. So maybe we could just pause and take a breather here <coughs> and look at these crowds. Because what you see in this man on this donkey really depends on where you're standing. It's all about perspective. It's really interesting that Luke chooses to begin this chapter with story of Zacchaeus then, isn't it? the story all about getting a fresh perspective on Jesus. Which of these three crowds describes you best? Which would you feel most at home in? Are you part of this enthusiastic entourage that uh, is utterly convinced that this is it, this is the time, this is the moment? Maybe you're those bewildered pilgrims who are just scratching your head, wondering what to think. What is this all about? This is unexpected. I don't know what to make of it all. Or maybe what you're one of the uh, seen-it-all-before locals. A little bit sceptical, a little bit cynical. I want to pause here because a really important part of being a disciple of Jesus is being open to having your perspective changed from time to time. Maybe you'll remember moments when you've had them. It's like the eyeballs come on. Something different, something fresh, something new. is coming into your mind and into your heart. Grace and I were talking about this just the other night. And uh, she reminded me of her first night out on a soup run with the mustard tree charity that she's involved in. And uh, she went out with some trepidation, but also in hope that she might be able to bless someone with a cup of tea, she might be able to uh, bless them with a smile or maybe even with some wise words. And she had her ideas turned upside down pretty quickly one of the first people she met was a homeless man an astonishingly kind man who perhaps sensed that she was new and a bit nervous and chatted with her and then offered to pray for her prayed for her on the streets and she was gobsmacked I remember her coming home that night saying I think I've met Jesus and she was probably right As I was reading through this section of Luke 19, again and again over the last few days, something came out to me that changed my perspective, a little detail that I had not noticed before. There's the singing of the songs, and uh, perhaps Psalm 118. It certainly wasn't, like I said, it wasn't in the order of service for the walk up to Jerusalem. It was a bit off-piste. So maybe it was a little bit provocative as well. There's some words in there in Psalm 118 that if you were a Pharisee, you might get a little bit offended by in this context. Talks about stuff like the stone the builder rejected becoming the capstone. It's got all that stuff going on in it. And so they were getting a bit tetchy about that. And there was this kind of altercation. And they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And there's this Little exchange of words, where he says, "Well, <coughs> best be careful, eh? Because if they're not singing, then perhaps the sc- the stones are going to cry out." <coughs> and so, perhaps in this context, the Pharisees are this sort of embodiment of this local Jerusalem kind of mindset. It's as if they're saying, "Shh, shh. look, we're getting closer to the city now." You can make a fuss out here in the olive groves and that's fine. But soon the temple police and the Roman guards are going to start to hear this racket. And then we're all in big trouble. And so it seems to me in this context that this uh, reference to the stones crying out, it's a, a not very subtle way of Jesus saying, look, better the noise of singing than the noise of stones clashing on shields. It's a sense that this crowd is good-natured now. But if you start to get heavy and get in their way, we know the way people deal with stuff in Palestine. Hands to the floor, rocks to the ready. They still fight like that now 2,000 years later. So maybe there's something going on there. How do we keep this crowd good-natured? And we've considered three perspectives then. But there's a fourth that we've not looked at. And that's the view from the donkey. Or the view from on the donkey. I'm not going to try and get inside the mind of a donkey. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus' view. What did he see? And particularly, what made him weep? I wonder if he was, I think he was traveling... And it's almost like you read and it's like they almost turn a bit of a corner and he gets a glimpse of the city. And at that point, something's jumped, something's awakened in his heart. (coughs) It grabs him at the core of his emotions because we know that Jesus was in touch with his emotions. We see that lots through the Gospels. The parallel in his mind might have been a bit like this. Here he is on this donkey and he looks around and sees these crowds, there's this altercation and he thinks, this could easily be an army. These palm branches, these could easily be Roman standards with an eagle and a bear and a lion. I could easily be a Roman general coming in on a horse here. And you know what, from that perspective, this little city looks very, very vulnerable. ain't the mighty fortress of David anymore. That was a long, long time ago. It's like Jesus is sensing the inevitability of Jerusalem's destruction. Sees that the current state of affairs is just so fragile. These Jewish leaders, just so parochial. And the Romans with this toxic mix of military power and political impatience and their fickle rulers. And Jesus wept. And it reminds me, it's got echoes of the last line of Jonah, the book of Jonah. Where the Lord is having, he's having a bit of argy-bargy with the prophet Jonah. Who's upset about his vine that has withered. And God says to him, what about, what about the city, Jonah? Get your priorities in order. What are you really upset about? And there's this line, and sadly the new translation of the New International Version has, has messed with it a little bit. But uh, the old 1980s version that I'm used to reading puts it like this, should I not be concerned about that great city? Now the city in question there was Nineveh, not Jerusalem. But it's God's heart for cities. God seems to have this heart for cities, for the special kind of life that occurs in a city where people are thrown together, hundreds of thousands of people, families, kids. God's got a heart for cities, <coughs> and so that's what's being expressed. I believe Jesus is expressing God's heart there. <coughs> Yes, for Jerusalem, but actually for all cities. So I want to start maybe uh, drawing a few conclusions. There are some, there are some big, big questions that are being asked here by this rabbi on a donkey. There's a question about national identity, about religious identity about its form, about its representation. Reminds me a little bit of uh, what's been going on in the Middle East recently as we've seen different regimes in turmoil, haven't we? Leaders who've clung on to power and then the people have had an uprising and overthrown them. And You see the kind of tragic ongoing situation in Syria at the moment, don't we, where people have been trying to unseat this ruling party and this ruling president and it's just become this stalemate, and this bloodshed. Well, there's these parallels there, isn't there? The, the, the power is being questioned. And so through this bit of set piece theatrics, Jesus seems to be deliberately provoking this debate about power and about rulership and about who's really in charge. Who's Israel's true king? Jesus wants a conversation about that. Let's talk about that because there's this situation going on. We've got the Romans, we've got all these religious leaders. Is anybody really representing Israel in the way that God wants Israel to be represented in the world? To be a light to the nations. Israel's true king is certainly not Herod and it's certainly not Caesar. And of course the expectation in the crowd is, well maybe it's this guy on this funny little donkey. Jesus was always, throughout the Gospels, always a threat to fraudulent powers, wasn't he? And he still is. And again, a few questions that come to me then. I wonder wonder on a personal level, Is is power rightly distributed in my life, in your life? Is there, would there be any sense this morning that maybe you have taken power that doesn't belong to you, overstepped your mark as a boss or as a parent, as a spouse? We can do that sometimes. We can overstep the, the boundaries of what God's, Gifted to us in terms of power and responsibility. Have you given too much away? Maybe that's our story this morning, that we've conceded rights too easily. Maybe become a bit of a doormat in the process. And that actually, our perspective on Jesus this morning is that he is the one who comes and empowers us to become all that we really ought to be. Powerful questions, aren't they? And it's interesting that in the final scene then, final scene of this chapter, we get the account of the clearing of the temple. We've already mentioned about Jesus being an emotional kind of guy. One One of the strange things that we find about this story is Jesus seems to get quite angry. We don't know exactly How angry or whether it's a spur of the moment thing or whether he just decided if I'm going to get these people out of the temple then I'm just going to have to put my angry face on. Get out of here. Get my whip out. But something's happening. And he's driving out these wheeler dealers out of the temple. Reminding them of the scriptures that call that place a house of prayer for all nations. And it's, as we come up to the week of the Passion of the Christ, it's the first, I suppose, of of several passionate acts that start to challenge the powers even more directly than the stunt on the donkey. It's the beginning of him putting things right. He's yet to enact the Last Supper. But he is. He's definitely laying the foundation. For his trial and his suffering. And his death and his resurrection. It's the beginning of putting things right now. I'm right in the heart of the action. And I'm beginning to put things right. And. Here's where I want to leave us today. You remember the 40 Acts? <coughs> Many of you will have been in the room just a couple of weeks ago when we had our family service, and uh, we were looking at the uh, the material from stewardship, the giving organization. And throughout Lent, they've had this 40 Acts process. Have any of you been engaging with that? A few of you, maybe? I know we've referenced it several times anyway, and the kids got involved in some of it. Really really fantastic way of trying to put our faith into action for a little period of time. Be more generous. Perhaps be more intentional and expressive of our faith on a daily basis. I'm going to do this today and I'm going to do that tomorrow.
1: 40 really, really
0: simple ways. Well, Lent will soon be over. But I hope that our desire to act out of faith won't be. I hope that won't just be a season when however you've been, if you've been doing anything or nothing for Lent, and lots of people fast things during Lent, and it is this little season during the year of being very intentional about our spirituality, isn't it? People follow a prayer plan during Lent, or, or do things like the 40 Acts. But actually, I think there's something going on here in the story that's saying now's the time to step it up another level. Now's the time Maybe to be thinking about can we get involved, maybe as individuals, maybe as little clusters of people, clusters of friends, maybe as a church together, can we get involved in increasingly significant acts? More than simple random acts of kindness, premeditated goodness that has been heavily conspired. Can we plot some goodness? Salford, for our communities, for our city. Things that really start to put right the wrongs in our world. Because there are wrongs that need to be put right, aren't there? On a personal level and even on a bigger canvas as well. So what might that mean for you? What might that mean for us together? And I want to leave it there. I want us to pray into that a little bit. Maybe I'll uh, I'll leave some prayer around that and then Ian can come up with the band and maybe we'll sing some stuff that might help us as well. Would you join me in some prayer? Let's bow our heads. (coughs) Thank you, Lord, for the way that you've gifted your scripture to us. Thank you that it's so rich, so deep, Lord, at the beginning of this chapter, (coughs) that incident with Zacchaeus, getting that fresh perspective, give us a a fresh perspective this morning, Lord. These crowds that we've been imagining ourselves amongst, with their expectations and their hopes, let us be expectant this morning, Lord. You're doing new things in our lives. Even as next Sunday we'll be celebrating the ultimate story of new life, let us today hope afresh for new life, Lord God. Something new to be born in our lives and in our church community here. For you are the true King. You are. King of all, King of our hearts, King of this city, King of this world. We have thrown you again in our hearts this morning, Lord God. We acknowledge you are worthy of praise. In Jesus' name, amen.